Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. In this particular episode, I'm sad because it's snowing. Yes, I know snow is beautiful. I should be happy that it's snowing, but I actually had you interact with the snow, which is something I just don't enjoy, and the weather is just warm enough that while it is snowing, the snow isn't actually sticking to the ground, which is not at all pleasant. Before I start this episode, I actually have a correction to make. In my latest tangent cast on Napoleon II, I was very silly and said that the King of France after Napoleon was Charles X. That is obviously incorrect. The King of France after Napoleon was Louis XVIII. I have no idea why I said something so obviously false, but I apologize. Moving on to today's study guide. I'm going to be talking about Napoleon III. You probably did learn about Napoleon III in history class. He is a pretty big deal in modern French history, but when you learn about him in history class, as I remember from being a high school history student, it's mostly in terms of how he made Paris, the city that it is nowadays, aka wide boulevards, and a little bit less about his policies because his policies are a touch complicated. Fine, I don't find them all that complicated, but your average 15-16 year old might find them complicated. So I'm really excited to delve in to some of those policies, albeit on a slightly higher level, less detailed oriented way, which is how I like to do things. His study guide includes a dashing prison escape, a whole lot of opium, and a near cousin marriage. Let's begin. The man who one day would be Napoleon III, Emperor of France, is born on April 20th, 1808 in Paris. His birth name is Charles Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, but everyone just calls him Louis Napoleon. His parents are Louis Bonaparte, the King of Holland, and Hortense de Beauharnais, the daughter of Josephine Bonaparte, Napoleon's first wife. His parents have an arranged marriage and a very rough relationship. By 1808, the two basically don't live together, and Louis Bonaparte, for one, is completely convinced that our Napoleon isn't his actual son, although by nowadays, most historians do think that Napoleon III was in fact Louis Bonaparte's legitimate son. Louis Napoleon is the youngest of Louis and Hortense's three sons. He has an older brother, Napoleon Charles, who will die before Louis Napoleon is even born, and a middle order brother named Napoleon Louis, because as it turns out, Louis Bonaparte isn't exactly the most creative when it comes to naming his children. Louis Napoleon, who I'm also just going to be calling Napoleon III, sort of interchangeably throughout this episode, so please don't get too confused, isn't going to be officially christened until 1810, when he's two years old. At the time of his christening, his godparents are going to be 
Napoleon Bonaparte, his uncle, and Napoleon's second wife, Marie Louise, because by 1810, Napoleon has divorced Louis Napoleon's grandmother, Josephine, and has remarried. Nothing all that exciting really happens in Louis Napoleon's early life until 1814, when Napoleon Bonaparte abdicates the first time. With Napoleon's abdication, suddenly all of his siblings have to give up whatever lands they were ruling over, including Louis Bonaparte, who had been the king of the Netherlands. However, by the time that Louis Bonaparte gives up the Netherlands, Hortense was technically in control of the children. Yes, the custody of the children isn't quite determined, but they're living with Hortense, which means that Hortense is going to take the children first to Chateau Malmaison, where their grandmother Josephine Bonaparte lives, and then later on to Switzerland after Napoleon abdicates a second time post-Waterloo, because if you're a Bonaparte, you really don't want to be living in France post-Waterloo. After Waterloo, Louis is going to get an education in Bavaria in modern-day Germany, which means that he is going to grow up with a German accent. In fact, he will have this accent for most of the rest of his life, even once he is ruling France for good. After Napoleon's second abdication, Louis Napoleon is going to be separated from his older brother because Louis is going to win custody of Napoleon Louis after a long and fairly complicated court case and will take him to France, whereas the younger Louis Napoleon is going to stay with Hortense. As a result of this, Louis Napoleon is always going to have a fairly tense relationship with his father. After all, Louis Bonaparte is going to be convinced that Louis Napoleon isn't even his son, and on top of this, is always going to be extremely critical of his youngest child. For the rest of his life, whenever Louis Napoleon produces any sort of writing or is going to attempt anything, Louis Bonaparte is going to be like, no, you're wrong. This isn't good enough. Try again. In the 1820s, Hortense and Louis Napoleon are going to start moving around. They're going to leave Switzerland and head to Italy, where they will settle for good in 1825. Once he settles for good in Italy, Louis Napoleon is really going to get caught up in various liberal political movements, which his big brother is already very involved in. He is mostly going to be involved in the Carbonari group in Rome. The Carbonari group are fighting against the whole concept of the Austrian Habsburgs controlling large chunks of the Italian peninsula. I'm not going to get too deeply into the Carbonari, but it's best to think of them as a quasi-precursor to the Italian unification movement that will really kick off post-1848. Around this time, Louis Napoleon is also going to try to join the Russian army in an attempt to fight against the Ottomans to help free the Greeks and make Greek nationalism a whole thing. However, Louis Napoleon will never fully join the Russian army against the Ottomans because one, his father hugely disapproves of this venture, and two, more importantly, a peace treaty be between the Ottomans and the Russians gets signed before he can fully join in. 
Then, in 1830, Louis-Napoleon starts studying gunnery at a military school in Switzerland and will eventually write the training manual that is still used by the Swiss Army. Obviously, this is hugely exciting and suggests that Louis-Napoleon has quite a bit of military talent. However, it isn't enough for his father, who reads the military manual and is like, eh, it's not that great. Even during his time at military school, Louis-Napoleon is going to continue being involved in the whole nationalist politics thing. But then, in 1831, this whole political involvement project wildly goes south. Louis and his older brother get stuck in Forli in northern Italy while part of a Republican uprising there. There is a measles outbreak, and Napoleon Louis gets sick and dies, either from this measles outbreak or, according to various conspiracy theories, from his political activities because he may have been shot by Austrian soldiers in Forli, and it may have been getting shot that killed him, not the measles. As a result of Napoleon Louis's death in 1831, Louis Napoleon is the only one of Louis and Hortense Bonaparte's children to survive. After his older brother's death, Louis Napoleon does manage to escape northern Italy and the Austrian army, and he and his mother will go to France, where they will live there in secret for a little bit, because in France in the 1830s, it is technically still illegal for members of the Bonaparte family to live in France. Even though it is illegal for him to live in France, he and his mother introduce themselves to then-king of France, Louis-Philippe. They're recognized, and they will get to live in France for a little bit, although they will eventually be forced to leave due to political pressure because Louis Napoleon has a habit of meeting with members of Louis Philippe's political opposition, which makes Louis Philippe super irritated. As a result of this, Louis Napoleon and Hortense will go to live in England for a little bit and then move to Switzerland. All this happens by around 1832. 1832 is going to be a huge fucking year for the Bonapartes, because that is the year that, subject of the latest tangent cast, Napoleon II dies. As we all know, Napoleon II was Napoleon Bonaparte's only legitimate child. And with his death, there's a bit of a vacuum in the line of succession for the Bonaparte family. None of Napoleon's older brothers, specifically Joseph or Louis, because Lucien Bonaparte has been kicked out of the line of succession due to all of the dramas we discussed in his study guide, won't he be next in line? So suddenly, Louis Napoleon is next in line for the Bonaparte succession. As the now heir to Napoleon Bonaparte, he starts to get involved in French politics. He also changes his name from Louis Napoleon Bonaparte to Napoleon Louis Bonaparte to sort of establish his connection to his now dead uncle. The now Napoleon Louis Bonaparte starts to write all sorts of political tracts where he praises the regime of his uncle. He also starts to meet with French Bonapartists who are super fed up with Louis Philippe and want to bring back a Bonaparte 
regime. And because the now Napoleon Louis never met a coup that he didn't like, he starts to get involved with attempted coups against the French government of Louis Philippe. The first of these attempted coups occurs in the fall of 1836 and fails after two hours. In the aftermath of this failed coup, Napoleon Louis gets arrested. However, Louis Philippe, who, as we recall, personally knew Napoleon Louis, does let him go on the promise that Napoleon Louis go into a self-imposed exile into the United States. Napoleon Louis agrees, but this exile isn't all sunshine and rainbows. At the time of the coup, Napoleon Louis was technically engaged, and his fiancée was his cousin Matilda, his uncle Jerome's daughter, because the Bonapartes just love marrying their cousins. When Matilda finds out about Napoleon Louis' coup in exile, she promptly breaks up with him, and Napoleon Louis is like, fine, or whatever, and immediately starts having some fun affairs as soon as the engagement is over. So, Napoleon Louis spends a few months in the U.S., like he promised, but in 1837, he breaks his promise to spend the rest of his life in the U.S., comes back to Switzerland via England in order to see his mother Hortense, who by now is dying. Hortense ends up dying in October 1837. As soon as Hortense dies, Louis-Philippe is like, hey, Napoleon Louis, you've broken your promise. You're back in Europe. That's not okay. And immediately tries to extradite him back to France to send him to prison. But Switzerland's like, hey, he's a Swiss citizen. You can't extradite him back. And for now, Napoleon Louis is safe. And he's about to make himself much safer because he then moves to France's traditional rival, England, which definitely is not going to help out Louis-Philippe by extraditing him back to France. While in England, he's mostly going to lay low, by which I mean he's going to fight in a duel against one of Napoleon's many illegitimate children. I was unable to find out exactly what happened in this duel. I mean, obviously he survived. I'm assuming the illegitimate child survived because he didn't get arrested for murder or anything like that. Then 1840 rolls around. In 1840, Napoleon's body finally gets sent back to France and gets reburied in a beautiful ceremony. And Napoleon Louis decides that it's a perfect time to get involved in yet another coup against Louis Philippe. His rationale is Napoleon's body is back in France. France is ready for another Bonaparte to be running the country. And once again, this coup also fails. And once again, Napoleon Louis gets arrested. But this time, Louis Philippe isn't ready to be so forgiving. Instead of letting Napoleon Louis go back to the United States, he sentences him to life in prison at Homme in the Somme. Napoleon Louis spends his time in prison writing more political manifestos. And in these political manifestos, instead of focusing on how awesome his uncle was, he's going to be really focusing on how terrible living conditions are for the working class. 
He's also going to entertain himself in prison by having an affair with a laundress there and having two children with her. However, Napoleon Louis is not going to spend his entire life in prison, because if he did, that would be a very boring study guide. Instead, in 1846, Napoleon Louis is going to manage to escape from prison. He disguises himself as a laborer who was working on the prison. He literally just walks out of the front gate of the prison, albeit while holding a piece of wood over his face, but that kind of lame disguise is enough to get out of the prison. Once he's out of prison, Napoleon Louis goes to London, because remember, England is not going to extradite him back to France, and continues to write political pamphlets. Once he's free from prison, Napoleon Louis does attempt to go to Italy to reunite with his dying father, but he's unable to do so due to passport problems, which means that Napoleon Louis is unable to see his father before Louis Bonaparte dies in 1846, which is really sad. Even though Napoleon Louis and Louis Bonaparte had a tense relationship, he did deserve to see his father one last time. Once Louis Bonaparte dies in July 1846, Napoleon Louis, who is 38 years old, is suddenly the head of the Bonaparte family. And things are going to continue escalating for him because we are getting ever closer to 1848, the year of revolutions. So let's quickly look at 1848. And when I say quick, I mean quick, because you could do an entire podcast series on 1848. Hell, Mike Duncan already has. And if you want an amazing deep dive on 1848, listen to his series about it. Basically, in 1848, there is hella unrest in France. Louis-Philippe is amazingly unpopular due to how corrupt he is, even though when he had first come to the throne in 1830, he was known for being the cool Republican guy. In February 1848, Louis-Philippe attempts to crack down on political, on political opponents, which completely fails and leads to massive riots throughout France, which leads to Louis-Philippe abdicating. Once Louis-Philippe abdicates, Louis-Napoleon sees a little bit of an end for himself. He heads to Paris. He heads to France because he realizes that with the king out of power, Paris is going to run the show, and if French history has taught us anything, if Paris alone is running the show, things are going to get real messy. Once he arrives in France, Napoleon Louis is like, look, I love this brand new republic that's been established without a king. I totally want to help you out. But the brand new republic is like, look, we don't need you. We have things totally under control. Napoleon Louis is like, fine, whatever. Don't say I didn't ask you for help. And pieces back to England for a bit. In April 1848, the New Republic holds national elections. And Napoleon Louis manages to win four different elections, including one in his family's hometown of Corsica to be in the new assembly. However, he doesn't take any of the seats because he doesn't want to isolate the current extremely liberal government. 
this new government is going to do a ton of super cool stuff, like abolishing slavery, the death penalty, etc., etc., but it's also seen as working too much with radical Parisians, so the country starts splitting between the radicals in Paris and basically everyone else. New elections are going to get called. There's going to be a whole lot of drama, a whole lot of bloodshed. Barricades are going to go up in Paris. You know the drill. Basically, by September 1848, there's yet another round of elections, and outside of Paris, most of the results are going to be pretty conservative. In the September 1848 elections, Napoleon Louis wins yet again, and this time he decides to take these seats. In October 1848, the National Assembly says, okay, we actually need a president. Things are kind of messy, and this president is going to be elected via universal manhood suffrage, because that's the best way to have a president. By now, Napoleon Louis realizes that he's pretty popular, and he says that he will run for president under the newly established Party of Order. And he ends up winning this election in December 1848 with about 75% of the vote. In this election, Napoleon's platform is kind of non-existent, to be totally honest. He's mostly focused on restoring order after the anarchy that was the spring of 1848, and most of his support comes from nostalgia for his uncle. Yes, there is opposition to him. A lot of more leftists feel like he's a pretender who doesn't have any experience or knowledge of politics, and most of the opposition he runs into is because he does have a fairly strong German accent. But none of that is enough to stop him. Like I said, he wins with 75% of the vote, which is a huge margin to win by, especially considering he's running against multiple other candidates. After he wins the election on December 10th, he takes the official title Prince President and promises that he will serve a single four-year term. Spoiler alert, that's not going to happen. And it becomes really clear that's not going to happen really quick. In 1849, he pushes his council to resign and instead proposes a new government that will answer to him first and foremost, even before the National Assembly. And pretty quickly, tensions start rising between Napoleon and the National Assembly. In May 1850, the French government passes a law that limits universal manhood suffrage, which was how Napoleon had gotten elected. Napoleon makes it pretty clear that he's not exactly thrilled about this brand new law. Around the same time, the government also passes a really repressive press law that limits freedom of the press. Napoleon isn't quite as pissed off about this particular law, but we're starting to see tension between Napoleon and the National Assembly. The next year, in 1851, we start to see even more tension. There's a debate over 
what exactly the Constitution should say, especially when it comes to how much money the president gets and if the president has to go through the National Assembly in order to get said money. In June 1851, Napoleon then pushes for a law that would let him serve more than one term. The National Assembly says, yeah, no, about that law. Okay, fine. Technically, the law passes the National Assembly, but it doesn't pass by enough of a margin to make it become a law. And Napoleon is extremely unhappy about this. He's so unhappy about it, in fact, that he organizes a military coup. He chooses December 2nd, 1851 as the date for his coup. He chooses the date of December 2nd because that was the anniversary of the date of when Napoleon got crowned, slash the date that Napoleon won the Battle of Austerlitz. So... December 2nd, 1851. On that date, Charles de Mornay, Napoleon's minister of the interior, and his illegitimate half-brother through an affair that Hortense had had, says that the National Assembly is dissolved. De Mornay then announces new elections via universal manhood suffrage, because remember, the National Assembly had tried to limit universal manhood suffrage. In this announcement that we're going to have brand new assemblies with universal manhood suffrage, Napoleon says, oh yeah, it's going to be just like 1830-1848 when we kicked out the corrupt king and had a fun revolution. Then Napoleon and de Mornay call the army into Paris to put down any dissent. And there's really limited dissent in this case. A few thousand people end up getting arrested and are sent to Guiana for trying to prevent the coup, but there's very little unrest. The National Assembly is prevented from meeting, and Napoleon makes it clear that he's in charge. A few weeks later, on December 20th, 1851, Napoleon has a national referendum asking the citizens of France if they approve of this coup aka of his claiming power. 76% of the French voters say, yeah, they totally approve. And the fact that it was 76% of the voters and not some crazy number like 98% of the voters suggests to me that this referendum was fairly legitimate. After all, in 1848, 75% of the voters had voted, had voted Napoleon in. After this referendum, Napoleon writes a new constitution that gives him power for 10 years, but that's still not quite enough for Napoleon. A year later, in December 1852, he pushes through another referendum that asks if he should go from just being President Napoleon Louis to being Emperor Napoleon III. Once again, the French voters approve this referendum by a majority, and Napoleon officially becomes Emperor Napoleon III on December 2nd, 1852, aka the one-year anniversary of his coup. Once he's emperor, Napoleon III moves in to the Tuileries Palace, aka the historic home of the French, of the French monarchy, 
aka where his uncle Napoleon had lived as emperor. From the get-go, his reign is all about control. Napoleon III does not want to lose power or have another counter-coup. Some of the first laws he pushes through as emperor are laws that punish the family of Louis-Philippe and the remaining Bourbons. For example, he's going to take away the inheritance from the Bourbon family and the family of Louis-Philippe. He's also going to pass a lot of laws around press censorship and really limit what universities can teach. He's also going to pass laws that limit the power of the National Assembly and the National Guard. All of these laws are going to make him pretty unpopular with the left. For example, Victor Hugo is going to have a bit of a field day criticizing him, as well Karl Marx. The next thing that Napoleon III is going to do is tightening his succession. As emperor, he needs a wife and a legitimate child, especially since by now Napoleon III has a reputation for being a bit of a player. He literally is having his social secretary, Elisa Bonaparte's nephew, set him up with the women across France, even though Napoleon III is known for not being especially attractive. He has really short legs and feet that stuck out weirdly, which causes a lot of his contemporaries to say that Napoleon III was only attractive on horseback when his short legs could be disguised. At the time that Napoleon III became emperor, he was having an affair with a British woman, Harriet Howard, who was also a bit of a financial backer to him, so obviously he couldn't marry her. Think of the scandal. As he's looking for a wife, Napoleon III first tries to marry Carola Vasa, the granddaughter of the ex-king of Sweden, and then tries to marry a niece of Queen Victoria. However, neither of those relationships go anywhere. He ends up marrying, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to completely butcher this name because it's been a long time since I've taken a Spanish lesson, Eugenie du Dirige de Montillo, Countess of Teba, who is 27 years old, to Napoleon III's 44, and whose parents are Spanish nobles. The two get married in a civil ceremony on January 29th, 1853 at the Tuileries Palace, and then have a religious ceremony at Notre Dame the next day. Even after the marriage, Napoleon III is going to continue having affairs because he's a member of the Bonaparte family, and that's what Bonapartes do. God damn it. To be fair, Eugenie is super cool. She is very into female equality and is going to push the French education ministry to let women in France actually go to college. You go, Eugenie. You're one of my heroes, kind of. I mean, I don't know that much about her, but she seemed like a pretty rad lady. In 1856, Eugenie gives birth to a son who is going to have the really creative name of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. So let's talk a little bit about Napoleon III and his policies as emperor. I'm going to start with his domestic policies and then do his foreign policies instead of doing it all chronologically because that would get a little messy. When it comes to his domestic policies, Napoleon III's real goal is going to be modernizing France, especially when it comes to the economy. 
Economically, France is comparably behind Britain as well as parts of what would one day be Germany. He had been really inspired by the factories and railroads that he had seen during his time living in Britain, and he wants France to have factories and railroads like Britain. Napoleon III decides that the best way to have France have said factories and railroads is to get the French government very involved in infrastructure and building. He's going to give a lot of government economic credit to businesses and factories. He's going to subsidize building railroads, shipyards, etc., etc. He's going to push for the creation of new nationwide banks like Credit Mobilier. And a lot of these ideas will work. The French economy really will start to hugely develop during Napoleon III's reign. He is also going to do huge public works, especially in Paris. And this is really going to happen because Paris's population had doubled between 1815 and 1850. However, the infrastructure of Paris had not kept up with the new population. Most of the city was the narrow alleys and streets from the medieval period. And this is a huge problem. If you have super narrow streets, those are really easy to barricade, like the revolutions of 1830 and 1848 had proven. And Napoleon III does not want Paris to be easy to barricade. He wants wider streets and more parks. So he's going to work with this guy, George Eugene Hausmann, to basically rebuild Paris and turn it into a modern city. Yes, this is going to mean tearing down huge chunks of the city, including a lot of people's homes, but Napoleon's going to do it. In 1860, he's going to annex 11 municipalities via decree and create eight new neighborhoods in Paris, from 12 neighborhoods to 20. The reconstruction of Paris takes about 20 years, but it ends up kind of being worth it. By the end of Napoleon's reign, Paris is a completely new city. When you think of the Paris of today, you can think Napoleon III. It's thanks to him that Paris has the huge long streets and the big parks that it's known for today. While Napoleon is also all about press censorship, he's also going to do some pretty big social reforms, especially social reforms that help the average working-class man and woman. In 1864, he passes a law that says strikes are legal. This is huge. Before 1864 in France, you could be arrested for going on strike. Hell, in the United States in 1864, strikes were still illegal. Strikes didn't become legal in the United States until way after 1864. Good job, America. Two years after that, in 1866, Napoleon III is going to set up a state insurance fund to help out disabled workers and widows and ensure that they literally didn't starve to death on the street. This state insurance fund is really going to create the modern European welfare state, which is always fun. And like I mentioned, through his wife, Eugenie, Napoleon III is going to expand higher education for women, which is always cool. Under Napoleon III's regime, we're going to have the first woman doctor in France, and he's also going to create over 
15,000 libraries, as well as expanding the public school system and making them more secular, which is nice if you're a non-Catholic in France, because those existed. However, despite all of these reforms and the new public works in Paris, by the late 1860s, Napoleon is going to be facing opposition from both sides of the political aisle. Conservatives don't like the fact that he's making public schools more secular and that he's pushing against the Pope when it comes to nationalization in Italy, and liberals don't like the fact that he has turned France from a republic to an empire. As a result, Napoleon will start having to make some political concessions, especially when it comes to the National Assembly. As the 1860s develop, the National Assembly is going to start having more and more of an influence. He actually is going to have to work with the National Assembly, especially because various parts of the political opposition are going to control more and more of a majority within the National Assembly. Despite opposition in the National Assembly, Napoleon himself is still going to be a very popular figure in France. While there is an assassination attempt against him in the late 1850s, it's a complete and utter failure. The only people who are harmed in this assassination attempt are the assassins himself, and it just leads to Napoleon being more popular within France. So that's what's going on in terms of Napoleon III's domestic policies. When it comes to foreign affairs, Napoleon III's main goal is to make France a bigger player in world affairs, because since Napoleon I's abdication in 1815, France had been a fairly small fish on the world stage, and Napoleon III would like to change that. Thank you very much. He's very pro using nationalism to distract people from stuff that's not going great at home, which in fairness is a thing that people besides Napoleon III will do. That's been a card in the political deck for eons. He's also pro-nationalism for non-French groups, such as Italian and Greek nationalism. However, in his famous L'Empire c'est la paix speech, Napoleon III does promise that France will not actively invade other European countries, and for the most part, he is going to keep that promise. So, let's look at Napoleon's foreign affairs. The big things that are going to happen will be the Crimean War, Italian nationalism, creating an overseas French empire, and Prussia. Let's do this chronologically, starting with the Crimean War. The Crimean War is honestly confusing. It's one of those things that has baffled high schoolers since time immemorial. So let's just try to do a quick overview of it. Basically, in 1853, the Russian Empire really starts bullying the Ottomans to give them full control of the Balkans and the Dardanelles Straits. If this happens, that would wildly upset the balance of power. And no one wants that, least of all, least of all France and England. Napoleon III ends up allying with the British to stop the Russians from taking over the Balkans. And Napoleon III had been wanting to ally with England for ages. This is a huge coup for him. After all, the English are excellent trade partners, and the English and the French had never exactly been on the best of terms, and suddenly they're friends. 
England and France end up sending ships to the Black Sea to push Russia back, and we officially get war in March 1854. During the war, France loses almost 100,000 soldiers, mostly from disease, but thanks to press censorship, the French population doesn't know the sheer number of losses. In the middle of the war, the Russian Tsar unexpectedly dies, so France and England end up winning the conflict. As a result of this win, France is going to have a ton more prestige on the world stage. It's really going to strengthen the relationship between France and England for the first time in centuries, and it shows Russian weakness. Score one for Napoleon III. Around the same time that the Crimean War is happening, Napoleon III really gets involved in Italian nationalism. As we recall from his early 20s, Napoleon III had always had a sympathy for the Italians, especially the Italians who'd been trying to push the Austrians out of the Italian peninsula. In this conflict in the 1850s, he's really going to be on the side of the Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, which is trying to unify the Italian peninsula and get it out from under Austrian control. The Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia is under the control of this Prime Minister, Calvor. And Calvor knows that the best way to get support from Napoleon III is to set him up with a new mistress, which is what Calvor does. He gives him a new mistress, who just so happens to be Cavour's cousin, which definitely isn't sketchy. In exchange for this new mistress, Cavour says that he will help push Austria out of northern Italy. So in 1858, Piedmont Sardinia attacks Austria. But then Napoleon backs off a little bit. But Austria ends up invading Piedmont Sardinia, and France gets pulled in and does end up fighting Austria. France and Piedmont Sardinia end up beating Austria, but Napoleon doesn't actually lead any of the fighting and tries to end the war as fast as possible. Yes, Piedmont Sardinia does get control of Lombardy from the Austrians, but Austria does stay in Venice, which means that the Italian unification scheme won't happen as fast as Piedmont Sardinia and Cavour might like. As a result, Cavour is going to blame Napoleon, which is fair. So, no points for Napoleon III. While all this is going on, Napoleon is also going to be pushing for an overseas French empire. France has been holding Algeria since the 1830s, but that's not enough for Napoleon III. He wants more. He's going to try to set up an empire in Mexico, but that goes absolutely terribly and is a story for another study guide. He also is going to set he also is going to start setting up French colonies in Southeast Asia. In 1863, he's going to make Cambodia a protectorate, which will begin France's control of Indochina. Point second for Napoleon III. And then we have Prussia. Under Otto von Bismarck's premiership, Prussia had started unifying German-speaking states which leads to the possibility of a fully united Germany, which is really, really scary for France's eastern side. In 1867, Prussia, under Otto von Bismarck, defeats Austria in a war, which really freaks out Napoleon III. 
to try to counter the rising Prussian power, Napoleon tries to increase the size of his army, but this fails because no one wants to enlist. As a result, France's army is only half the size of Prussia's, even though France's population is much larger than Prussia's. On top of this, Napoleon's health is starting to fail thanks to his time in prison back in the 1840s. He's dealing with chronic leg pain and has serious gallstones. To deal with his poor health, he is spending most of his time in saunas and taking a lot of opium. And things are going to get a little bit worse. Or not a little bit worse, a whole lot worse. Let's be fair. Let's not understate things. In July 1870, due to some internal drama, because there's always internal drama, Spain needs a new king. Prussia suggests that a cousin of their king should be the new king of Spain. Napoleon III says, oh, fuck me, absolutely not. But the Prussian candidate ends up becoming king of Spain anyway. Napoleon III tells Prussia to withdraw their candidate or there will be war. The candidate, the Prussian candidate agrees to withdraw on July night, on July 12th, but then there's some diplomatic drama via telegram due to misplaced commas. I wish I was joking. This is a real lesson for why knowing grammar is so important. And Napoleon III ends up declaring war on Prussia on July 19th. This is what's known as the Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War goes terribly for France. They keep losing and losing and losing. By August 1870, the French soldiers are totally demoralized. At the Battle of Sedan on September 1st, 1870, Napoleon III gets captured and surrenders. On September 4th, three days later, the Republicans take over the French government, ending Napoleon III's empire. France is no longer an empire. Long live the Third Republic. And then we get the Paris Commune, and everything falls apart. As a result of all of this, Napoleon III is going to be a captive of the Prussian government from September 1870 until March 1871. While he's a captive of the Prussians, he's going to keep trying to convince Otto von Bismarck to return him back to power in France, but obviously Otto von Bismarck isn't going to let that happen because Otto von Bismarck isn't an idiot. After the war, after the Franco-Prussian War ends in March 1871, Napoleon III is allowed to move to England with his wife and son. He's going to live in Kent, and Queen Victoria will end up visiting him, which is nice, except during this visit, she writes some really mean things about his appearance, which is less nice. Once he's in England, Napoleon III doesn't make any attempts to reseize control of France. Instead, he's going to spend most of his time writing about politics and, oddly enough, trying to design energy-efficient stoves. During his time in England, his health really takes a downturn due to his gallstones. He has a surgery to try to remove them, but the surgery fails, and Napoleon III ends up dying on January 9th, 1873, at the age of 64. He is buried in Hampshire, England. So, 
For those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's recap the life of Napoleon III. Napoleon III was the youngest son of Napoleon's brother, Louis Bonaparte. Because of the tense relationship between Louis Bonaparte and his wife, Hortense, Louis Bonaparte was convinced that Napoleon III was not in fact his actual son, although he probably was. As a result of this, Napoleon was mostly raised by his mother, Hortense. He bounced around between Paris and Switzerland and Italy, especially after Napoleon abdicated in 1815. He moved to Italy for good in 1825, where he and his older brother got really caught up in liberal political movements trying to kick the Austrians out of the Italian peninsula. It was all really fun and good until his older brother died while fighting the Austrians. After this happened, Napoleon III became the heir to the Bonaparte family because everyone else was, well, dead. As the heir to the Bonaparte family, Napoleon III continued getting really involved in radical politics, this time attempting various coups against the French government of Louis-Philippe. These coups kept failing. It had a boiling point in 1840 when his second coup against Louis-Philippe failed and he got sentenced to life in prison. However, life in prison did not actually mean life in prison because he escaped prison in 1846, moved back to London, and began writing political tracts against Louis-Philippe's government. And then the revolution of 1848 happened, and Louis-Philippe actually got overthrown. After 1848, Napoleon ran for office, won various elections, and decided why not run for president. Due to the popularity of the Bonaparte name, Napoleon won the presidency with a whopping 75% of the vote. Although some liberals grumbled about his utter lack of political experience and his strong German accent. But it didn't matter. He was Prince President of France. He promised to serve only one four-year term. It was going to be great. But pretty quickly, it became clear that he had no plans to serve only one four-year term. He quickly started feuding with the National Assembly in their attempts to limit his power, and on December 2nd, 1851, Napoleon overthrew the National Assembly in a military coup with the hope of his illegitimate half-brother and said, yeah, no, he was going to be in power for good. The next year, he had another referendum and named himself Emperor of France. It was this 1852 referendum that Napoleon started going by Napoleon III. As Emperor of France, he quickly consolidated power, passed a lot of censorship laws, really hamstrung the National Assembly, got married, had a kid, and started pushing through various domestic reforms. He modernized France, began subsidizing various internal railroad building, and opening a bunch of new factories. He completely redesigned Paris, tearing down narrow streets to prevent future barricades, and also did some pretty cool sweeping social reforms. For example, he started the modern French welfare state by setting up state insurance funds and allowing strikes to happen. He also secularized public education and allowed women to pursue higher education. He also really expanded France's presence on the world stage, 
through an alliance with England in the Crimean War, through getting involved with Italian nationalism, and by expanding France's overseas empire with a failed colony in Mexico, but a successful colony in Southeast Asia. But it wasn't all good. In the late 1860s, Napoleon III got a little anxious by the expanding Prussian power. In 1870, he went to war with Prussia, which was a huge mistake because, as it turned out, the Prussian army was way better than the French army. On September 1st, he got captured by the Prussian army at the Battle of Sedan and had he stepped down from being emperor. Three days later, his empire officially collapsed and the French Republic began. In March 1871, with the end of the Franco-Prussian War, the Prussian government let him go, and Napoleon and his family moved to England, where he would die in January 1873. So, that is Napoleon III. He is a mixed bag to me. On the one hand, I think he had a lot of potential as this cool liberal reformer. We see that in his early life. We see that with his social reforms. But I think he's a great example of power corrupting absolutely with the way he sees power in a coup and the way he really liked censorship. For this episode, most of my research came from Edward Roth's Life of Napoleon III, Alan Shaw Strauss's The Shadow Emperor, A Biography of Napoleon III, and David Bagley's Napoleon III and His Regime, an extravaganza. Next week, I will be releasing a study guide on Maximilian I of Mexico, a friend of Napoleon III, whose life did not go so well. As always, if you want a full bibliography and relevant images, you can visit the website at sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to help the podcast financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. If you donate at the $5 a month level or above, you get access to super cool bi-monthly tangent casts on people, places, or things that I wasn't able to cover in the normal study guides. The most recent tangent cast was on Napoleon's kid, Napoleon II. And as always, you can reach out to me on social media on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. And the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read a review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.